0: Hello and good afternoon. Um, Welcome to this podcast on carbon-linked bonds. My name is Nico Heller and this is Reboot 2030, the Democracy School's podcast and YouTube channel. My guest today is Bob Lineman. To many, especially on Wall Street, Bob is an absolute legend. He spent 23 years at Goldman Sachs, where between 1998 and 2009, he was in charge of their quantitative resources group, in Goldman's asset management. And prior to that, between 1994 and 1997, headed Goldman's firmwide risk department. During his time at Goldman's back in 1990, he also co-developed the well-known Black-Litterman financial model, together with Fisher Black. Since leaving Goldman's, he's co-founded Capos Capital in New York and chairs the risk committee. He's also on the boards of numerous non-profit organizations including the world wildlife fund the woodwell climate resource center sorry research center and the climate leadership council where he serves as co-chair according to bob many private investors are nervous about investing heavily in climate uh, solutions because they lack confidence that such investments will pay off governments might promise fossil fuels and other carbon sources to be very expensive in the future, but they're notorious for saying one thing and then doing another. In economics, this is a well-known problem and is referred to as time inconsistency. Finn Keitland and Edward Prescott won a Nobel Prize for their work on that. When it comes to climate change, investors are partly worried that governments might back away from their commitment to a high carbon price if there's a substantial backlash in political or economic terms. Bob argues that a carbon-linked bond market would turn an empty promise into one that would be costly to break, because if a government didn't uh, meet its carbon, uh, carbon, carbon price target and didn't compensate bondholders by paying them more as a result, it would be in default, which is something governments really don't want. At this point, this is simply an idea. I've therefore invited Bob to convince me that carbon link bonds really could mitigate global warming. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Bob has already arrived, so let me invite him in. Hello! Hello, Nico. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Really, really uh, great. Sorry for the, uh, the 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 kind of uh, the, the slide mix-up. We changed uh, to to winter time uh, just a week ago, and uh, so so that obviously uh, accounts for that. I'm so glad that we managed to connect now. Uh, it, it's a real honor, um, and um, it's really an interesting story. I think, and I think our listeners uh, should know this because. I've hardly ever met somebody in your position as approachable. And I think this is really both a sign of how important this issue is to you. And also, if you like, a sort of a say something about your character. What happened is, is I read an article about you in The New York Times. And that really triggered my interest in, in what you do around the idea of carbon bonds. I wrote a short email to you and really within an hour, I had a response. What a result. Bob, thank you ever so much. This is brilliant. Um, now I have already given a very short introduction about a very long life and a hugely successful life. I should add, uh, I mean, you're an absolute icon, really, to many. And um, um, and so, and it is interesting, you know, because of course I have a, a business school background myself, uh, but of course I never pursued that that particular avenue. Um, but it's really amazing to see somebody who just through his quantitative thinking around risk and statistics has been able to be so hugely successful. Amazing. Um, Bob, now... Thank you so uh, much. (laughs) A lot of people out there who will be thinking, well, somebody spent 23 years at Goldman's, a company who presumably spent a lot of investment capital on, you know, oil majors and this and that and the other. What kind of right does that person have to, when he retires, then to all of a sudden change sites and to become this, this good person? I, I think this is a sort of a cloud that a lot of people in the environmental field uh, would place above your head, rightly or wrongly, but I want to dispel this because this isn't about, you know, isn't about that at all. This is a much more specific conversation we're having here. Um, and, and so... Um, And also, of course, you know, interestingly enough, your expertise in risk, which you have put to very, very good use for investors you are now putting to very very good use uh, for the, the environmental movement and so i think uh, there there's in, in 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 that in itself there there's really some real uh, great benefit in that but but what would make somebody like you essentially spend his life on wall street uh, to then kind of you know hang up uh, you know uh, your hat and say and now i'm going to basically try uh, to fix uh, uh, the the climate crisis what what, what triggered that
1: well, thank you. You know, when I was on Wall Street for 23 years, I, I didn't think of it as, uh, you know, uh, having having a problem. I thought of it as, uh, you know, at the heart of the uh, market economy and connecting investors with, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and, uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, the quantitative background that I brought, I don't know if For me, it was kind of like being a kid in the candy store. There were just so many interesting problems uh, to address. And uh, I brought some tools from academia, as you say, uh, you know, risk management, statistics, econometrics. uh, And we found they were very useful uh, in solving a lot of problems uh, on Wall Street. And then when I retired, uh you know with a background in risk management one of my partners from goldman who was very involved in the environmental uh space asked me if i'd be interested and i said you know it seems to i i I was and in particular i thought climate change looked like a risk management problem that was not being addressed very well and uh maybe i could add something I, I, I remember at this, I, I was at a lunch and uh, I, I offered that, you know, this problem looked to me like it was pretty simple. We weren't pricing the risk. And if you price the risk, you know, you solve the problem. And, uh, you know, my partner said, well, Bob, you know, that's a brilliant insight from an economist, but uh, no one seems to know where to price the risk. And I'll be honest, that kind of sucked me in. I thought to myself, well, that that can't be true. There's got to be some academics out there who thought seriously about this, and they must have a pretty good idea. So, let me follow up on this. I can read the literature, and I did. And um, I, I discovered that an old friend of mine—I mean, I kind of knew this—Bill uh, Nordhaus, uh, who had been a macroeconomist. He and I had crossed paths, you know, decades earlier. And he'd already, you know, uh, been working for a long time in this climate space. So I read his stuff, and uh, it, it did seem to me that there were some uh, improvements that could be made. Indeed, that on Wall Street we had used what we call asset pricing or risk pricing, and it requires you to look at certain covariances, and that hadn't been done in the climate literature. And uh, so I, I started working on this and reading more and uh, got involved with some other academics who were you know, in, in the environmental space, Gernot Wagner, and the financial space, Kent Daniel. And we eventually wrote a paper that was published about where to price carbon. And indeed, it took a risk management perspective on it. Um, and you know, I, I just think it was natural to think about it from a risk management perspective perspective Absolutely. and when you think about that you know you start asking different questions you know totally you stop totally. worrying about what you expect and you start worrying about well what could happen in a worst case scenario for, for the
0: benefits of our listeners let's make a sort of a, a set of a very basic distinction here between um the the idea of the you know the carbon link bonds which which we're going to come to to later in our conversation and sort of the, the risk of climate change, because I think, of course, the beauty about, you know, the the, the CO t- CO2 model or the kind of the carbon is, is that we're talking ultimately about almost like a single variable. But of course, the um, um, the, the, the climate risk is a multi-variable problem, far more complex than just managing uh, CO2. Uh, and of course, you are an expert on risk and you've thought at a very deep level, of course, about climate risk and you're advising clients, um, you know, on investments decisions relating to uh, to to cli- climate risk, how do you think about uh, you know, not 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 the CO two aspect of it, which is one aspect, you know, whether that goes up or down in price? We we'll come to that later. But the more broad, the broader picture of of climate risk, which, to my way of looking at it, would include anything from certain certain political risks, uh, to certain environmental risks, to certain social risks. Um, and, and it's 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 a really, really difficult kind of mix to, to, to look at and to see what would happen you know, on a political, on an environmental, on a, you know, and so on and so forth. And of indeed, of course, also on an economic, because they're all intertwined uh, uh, level, if you know global warming would reach certain, certain levels. How how do you
1: how do you tackle, how do you approach this problem from a risk management perspective? Yeah, well you've you've done a pretty good job there in terms of your introduction there are there are many different dimensions to it I would say that right now and maybe the the place to start is where we're seeing impacts already which is with respect to extreme weather and uh you are seeing now that and for me i, I was part of a uh, working group on extreme weather and financial risk we wrote a report for the uh uh, the president's office. This was the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. And, and the report, which we published last April, basically said, look, the weather has already changed. The distribution of outcomes today is different than it has been historically. And it's going to change further, uh, but it's changing along many different dimensions. So most people, including myself, kind of have this uh, Notion that the distribution of outcomes somehow is moving, let's say, to warmer outcomes. It's it's shifting, uh, but that's really that's true along the temperature gradient. But what's much more important is that it's becoming fatter tail. That the total energy in the uh, atmosphere is higher. There's more uh, there's more water in the atmosphere and uh, and more heat in the oceans, and so. Uh, what happens is that uh, the tail events, the unlikely events uh, that used to happen, you know, very seldom, are now happening more often. And and as you think about damage from extreme weather, uh, there's a common uh, relationship between the frequency of an event and the amount of damage from that event. So in particular. Uh, Events that happened once in 100 years historically were kind of the ones that would wipe you out because you've never seen them, you're not prepared for them, they're not in the building codes, and so on. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about wind or rain or heat or drought or wildfire, any of the dimensions that are affected by weather uh, have more extreme outcomes. So you saw a, a cold snap in Texas a couple of years ago that they weren't prepared for because they'd never seen that kind of cold in that length uh, before. Similarly, we had wildfires in California, and they're having more hurricanes and stronger uh, wind speeds and hailstorms. and, hail and <laughs> You can go on and on. And in every one of these dimensions, what used to be the 100-year event, the 100-year flood, that would wipe everyone out is now happening more often. And so the insurance companies are aware of this and they're pulling back. You have some states like my state of California, which has a much higher wildfire risk now. And the insurers come in and say, well, you know, we've got to charge a lot more for wildfires. Maybe it's four times more or five times more than we have charged in the past. And the insurance commissioner says, well, you know, I, I don't see the evidence for that. And they say, well, you know, it's it's in these models or whatever. You know, it it makes it a lot harder to underwrite insurance. Uh, the reinsurers won't uh, underwrite it if they already have too much of that uh, risk. The, but the bottom line is the real risk is increased. And so the insurers who have a 12-month horizon anyway, they're saying, all right, we're going to pull back. They're not exposed. A lot of people falsely assume that the insurers have an incentive to solve this problem. They don't. They're, they're not exposed. They're going to pull back. And, uh, and so then what happens, at least in the U.S., is that uh, the state comes in and starts underwriting the insurance. But, of course, they can't make it profitable any more than the private sector. So either they subsidize it and that's going to fall onto the taxpayers or they reduce the coverage. And uh, ultimately, you get these big events and they fall on the federal government. So uh, when we talk about the you know, financial risk, ultimately, it's going to come back to the federal government. And where it's starting now is with extreme weather. But what most people don't understand is that it's just starting and it's going to accelerate. Sea level rise in particular, you know, over my lifetime, it's been rising, but very slowly. And so maybe so far a couple of inches, uh, two or three inches on the east coast of uh, the U.S. It it varies around the world, but uh, it's going to start going faster and faster, no matter what we do for the next several decades. And so on the east coast, you know, scientists expect maybe six feet of sea level rise, something like that by 2100. So you can see, it's going to be more than just an inch a decade or something. Let me it, let, let me just in, it. intercept here. Um, so um, what,
0: is it, what what I find interesting about sort of complex dynamics, like sort of climate risk, uh, and you you would you would you would find similarly complex dynamics in you know certain corners of the financial markets, capital markets. Um, psychology starts to play a really big role, doesn't it? Because when you can really empirically model it entirely when there's a lot of assumptions that feed into your model then of course psychology kind of plays quite a sort of a if you like sort of an increased role in other words the perception of you know how problematic the climate development is will have a direct impact on the actual perception of risk isn't that isn't that isn't that a fair point to make so if people begin to panic about crop, you know, uh, whatever kind of uh, yields or whatever it might be, then whether they materialize, you know, or not, it's almost secondary because the markets will build that in. Uh,
1: Well, first, you you said a lot of things there. And the first thing I would agree with is that people are not rational. Okay. So when you say psychology, I'm thinking, well, yeah, emotions, all kinds of things. Uh, And we know that people have biases. so. Uh, I, I guess I'm not sure where one goes with that. I don't think it says necessarily that people are going to wake up overnight. Some people think, oh, all of a sudden people are going to wake up and realize, and there's going to be, you know, just a crash in the markets, or somehow it's all of a sudden going to be priced in. And markets don't work that way. Uh, you know, financial markets are very much forward-looking, and and so uh, the valuations today are uh, built in a lot of uncertainty about the future and th- and there is tremendous uncertainty about the future so you can imagine you know technology gets us out of trouble somehow that you know the- Uh, what i'm I'm referring to pulling co2 out of the atmosphere but what i'm
0: referring to here is something quite specific in a way and i should probably kind of said that is this notion of trigger points so you get these trigger points in the actual in in kind of in the natural environment that methane gases because of whatever permafrost is kind of melting and then more gas is released in the atmosphere you get trigger points at various levels within the kind of sort of like, you know, physical environmental uh, field, but then people also start talking now about social trigger points and political trigger points. Uh, and I wonder whether you see these trigger points as well, and how you feel about that they, because it's when I'm talking about panics, So when I talk about sort of like a sudden race in and increase in awareness or whatever, these kinds of things where all of a sudden we reevaluate, uh, you know, the, the risk of something in the same way as the risk may actually really physically like get much worse because of much greater sort of like release of methane gas in in whatever in in, in alaska or wherever the kind of the permafrost melts
1: yeah yeah well i mean, yes I, I mean yes there uh, people are, in the context of climate uh scientists often talk about tipping points so where things become non-linear and uh that, i mean even more so in uh you know social situations i mean yes people, you know, countries go to war and all of a sudden you're in a completely different uh, uh, you know, condition than you were before. And similarly, physical systems you know, can undergo tipping points. And we may have passed, for instance, the point where uh, Greenland is ultimately going to melt. There may be just so much heat in the oceans uh, that that process is it's too late to stop. And if that's the case, that's 24 feet of sea level rise. And, and similarly with uh, you know, Antarctica, it's the same idea. We don't really know how much heat in the oceans will cause that whole ice sheet to, you know, destabilize, and that could be hundreds of feet. Now it's it's long into the future, and there's so much uncertainty about the future that we just have to think about, you know, uh, all the different possibilities. But in particular, the possibility that what we're doing today is causing the atmosphere to cross some tipping point that we're not aware of today and that it, it's too late to, to turn things around. That's, you know, what people worry about. And, and it's things like the uh, Arctic, which, uh, you know, with the sea ice melting, uh, that in itself doesn't raise sea level so much because it's floating, but it causes the uh, ocean to turn dark. And all of a sudden it's absorbing a lot more heat than it used to every year. And so you get a nonlinear effect. The, the oceans this year, uh, temperatures have gone up considerably more than they had in previous years. And so we're seeing uh, you know, impacts of that. Uh, there was also that uh, um, the volcano, that uh, the under, underwater volcano that shot just tremendous amounts of uh, water vapor into the atmosphere. Scientists think that may have caused some warming uh, this year. And then there's the cleaning up of all the soot from ocean transport that is causing less pollution, and that uh, can have a cooling, I mean, a warming impact. Uh, so uh, all these things may be combining, and yeah, you could get tipping points. But uh, whether we have such a tipping point or not, the impacts are just going to be increasing and, and increasing nonlinearly. And I think that's what people aren't prepared for. Uh, certainly in the uh, in the space of weather events. And then, you know, you can also talk about disease and disease vectors that are moving out of the tropics up north where they've never been before. You've got the wildfire smoke that uh, has impacts on health, uh, tremendous impact, negative impacts on health. And, uh, yeah, you, you could imagine a, a worst-case scenario where we on past the tipping point you know when you i always say to people when you're managing risk time itself is a scarce commodity you know it, it's a scarce resource if you have enough time you can solve you know any problem whether it's uh you know climate change or financial or whatever but it's when you run out of time that you know things get out of control and uh, and that's what we have to worry about Uh, I mean, what I'm uh, thinking
0: from a financial point of view, if if you were like um, Joe Biden and you had to think 20 years ahead and think, how much money do I have to put aside um, for, you know, to mitigate against climate catastrophe in the U.S.? can you put a figure to this or is this just such a difficult thing to calculate because of the whole complexity i mean how do you actually from a sort of a risk management perspective advise on what kind of reserves to build up to mitigate against climate change how do you i mean what, what is the kind of thinking on this yeah well
1: that's a great question and uh the answer basically is a lot more than we're doing uh the way People answer that question I think is helpful is they say, look, uh, today we're investing something like one and a half trillion dollars in low carbon capital or infrastructure uh, technology. And we need to be investing three times that, something like four or five trillion dollars per year in order to reach net zero by 2050. And net zero by 2050 is kind of the minimum uh, rate of reduction of this risk that, you know, it's it's something we've got to do. And uh, so how do you get that three times investment and why aren't we getting it? And the answer is, well, it's because it's not viewed as being profitable right now uh, or profitable enough. In other words, uh, you get these entrepreneurs who are thinking about, OK, how can I make money? By pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere or not putting it into the atmosphere, you know, in, in this process or whatever. Uh, well, they're out there trying to get investment dollars. And guess what? They're getting a little bit from the government. They're getting a little bit from philanthropy. They're not getting a lot from asset owners who are saying, gee, can I make money by investing in the next great technology for carbon sequestration? And, and they're not for a very simple reason that we are subsidizing fossil fuels to an extent that is just unbelievable. Now, this is not my uh, view. This is the view of the International Monetary Fund that has some good economists who have gone in and said, how big is the subsidies to fossil fuels? And what they find is that they are huge. In in a recent report, they said it was a um, seven Trillion dollar subsidy to fossil fuels in 2022, uh, up from like six trillion uh, two years earlier, and and the increase was driven in part, in large part, by the war in Ukraine, which caused the European governments to subsidize energy uh, to a huge extent this year. But but the biggest part of that seven trillion are the implicit subsidies that come from not putting a price on the particulate uh, you know, pollution, as well as the greenhouse gases that are emitted. And the IMF actually uses a social cost of carbon, in other words, the amount that they charge for that pollution, of $60 a ton. I think that is much too low. The uh, think tank resources for the future. I used to be on their board, uh, and they have really good environmental economists. Their recent estimate was $185 a ton. But uh, what uh, the IMF said is if you use that $185 a ton estimate, that's over $11 trillion, not $7 trillion. And and in the US alone, that would be over a trillion dollars in 2022. Now. You think about that amount of money—eleven trillion, $11 one trillion in the U.S. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know the U.S. government touts as its biggest, uh, you know, uh, spending on climate, is—it was originally estimated at three hundred and seventy billion over ten years, and now maybe it'll get up to a trillion over ten years versus a trillion dollars of subsidy every year uh you know in the u.s alone so we're trying to move in the direction of low carbon we've got a huge headwind And you you
0: have two you have two potential sort of like sort of if you like sort of a twin solution really don't you one is which you are a great advocate of is a carbon tax and the other one of course is the carbon bonds uh, which are kind of, they, they, they attack this problem from different angles. But of course, together, they would, they would exert some significant force and they could begin to move the market. So let's, before we move on to the carbon bonds, because that's obviously the core of what we're talking about today, say a few words about carbon tax, because again, it's very, very unusual for a investor of your caliber to say, hey, guys, we need more taxes. We need a new tax. So uh, this is, you know, this is quite unique. So maybe you could explain to me why you think that this would be a good thing and why it wouldn't damage the US economy in the long term.
1: Okay, well, let me start with, uh, you know, I'm trained in economics, but my undergraduate major was human biology, okay? And uh, what I learned is that uh, if you want to change behavior, and this is for any animal, okay? you have to change incentives. That's what incentives are. They are defined as things that change behavior. Anything that changes behavior is an incentive. And for humans, like any animal, you have to change incentives. So I like that word rather than taxes. But of course, incentives come in many forms. It could be a tax on pollution. Uh, it could be a subsidy for clean energy. These are all incentives. And you know, if you want to change behavior, you're going to change incentives. So that's what we've got to do. Now, uh, you know, people don't like to pay taxes, so we, we try to avoid that. We sometimes use the word fee, we sometimes use the word incentive, but ultimately we have to create those incentives. And so uh, one of the things that I found very interesting uh, many years ago is we started looking at, I say we, and my, my firm, the investment firm, Kepos Capital, we started looking at where are there strong incentives to reduce emissions? and you know how are those changing over time? And we called this uh, the carbon barometer, and it measures those incentives. And uh, what we found is, first of all, they're much too low globally. Uh, secondly, there's no harmonization of incentives whatsoever. And so that you have very strong incentives in Europe, you have essentially no incentives in the major polluting countries of the US, China, India, and uh, and then in a lot of countries, in the Middle East, in Russia, uh, in Venezuela, you have subsidies to fossil fuels, uh, consumption of fossil fuels. And so the price on pollution is actually negative. So this is, this, is, this is the fundamental problem that we have. And then you look around the world and you say, okay, uh, how can you change those? And that's where The uh, carbon link bond came in. It was an idea. The idea is basically let's focus on these incentives and, and the lack thereof globally. So they're an order of magnitude too small. And, you know, where is that? Why is that? And what can we do to increase it? And so that's where the carbon link bond came in. And uh, it, uh, yeah. my
0: listeners don't really know much about bond markets. So let's start really there. What exactly is a bond and what exactly is a bond market? How does it work in principle?
1: Yeah, well, the simplest idea, especially for a government, although it could be a corporate or anyone who's borrowing, uh, to actually create an instrument, uh, a promise, as it were, to pay back money in the future. And so uh, uh, typically that would include coupons, uh, which are fixed payments at a given interest rate, say 3% coupon. Uh, typically it's paid twice a year. And then the bond itself, uh, the principal is repaid at the end of a maturity, which is typically you know, 10 years, could be 20 years, 30 years. Uh, so you have a maturity, a coupon, and that defines a typical Uh, government bond. The U.S. government bonds are considered the safest, but they still have at least some modest amount of credit uh, if you're worried about the U.S. government or some other government uh, defaulting. Uh, But anyway, that's what a bond is. And in the U.S. uh, and in many other countries, there's a specific type of bond that is a wrinkle on the standard nominal bond and that's what's called an inflation-protected security, uh, a bond where the coupon, rather than being fixed at, say, 3%, has a uh, escalator in it so that if there's inflation, the uh, borrower pays the real rate of interest to the uh, lender rather than a nominal rate. It protects the lender from unanticipated inflation. And so... Uh, That, it turns out, is very interesting because it reveals that the price of that bond reveals what the market expects inflation to be. By comparing this real return bond with a nominal return bond, one can see that the market expects some or more uh, inflation over the course of the bond. And that, it turns out, is very useful. I used to work at the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. Back in the 1970s, when inflation was getting out of control, and the Federal Reserve was trying to uh, get it back in control, and we had this theory at the time that rapid money growth causes inflation. And so every week, the Federal Reserve would uh, publish a measure of money growth for the previous week, and these numbers were very noisy. They would bounce up or down—you know, ten billion, two billion, up, four billion—you know—and we would. Respond by uh, basically pulling reserves out of the system, causing interest rates to go up if the money supply was too fast, or vice versa. Uh, it was it was kind of crazy because uh, these money supply numbers were very noisy. You, you know, you'd you'd see a big blip up, ten billion dollars. Oh my god, we've got to respond. And then you get you know to the end of the year, you'd look back, and because the data had now been uh, you know seasonally adjusted and Corrections were made. and There was no blip there anymore. And you're saying, oh, my God, what would we do? Well, doing? this is well, interesting,
0: there there's two aspects to this, isn't it? On the one hand, it sort of serves the private interest of the investor. He's protected against, if you like, movements in inflation. So, yeah. but but that's a, a, a private... Interest, but then there is also the, the public good interest, which basically says it imposes discipline on governments because, of course, it gets very, very expensive for the government if it basically inflates um, the value of its currency. Um, and. And and so 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 there is a kind of a, a break on inflation, which 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 has over time uh, uh, stabilized uh, markets in in significant ways, and and that in yeah. some ways is is the kind of the link you're making to the carbon uh, linked bond,
1: isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's about credibility, uh, you know. And you you raised that issue early on about psychology. Well, yes, it's kind of psychology and it's credibility. And today, if you look at how central banks uh, manage inflation, certainly in the US it's very forward-looking. They talk about you know their interest rate forecasts, their employment forecasts and uh, inflation forecasts. And in addition to what the Fed uh, governors tell you, you can look at what the market thinks and they look at what the markets think. so indeed when you know all of a sudden the they call it break even inflation, the inflation embedded in these bonds goes up, the fed says all right we have a problem we have to respond and that that feedback creates credibility so that the bond market investors think that the fed will be able to control this and and they do and so we need a similar credible policy for carbon if we want to create the 5 trillion dollars of investment that we need then you back one step Forward, and you say, okay, what do we need? We need investors, private investors, to expect that they're going to make a profit when this capital is online over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, so, how do we get investors to expect that profit? Well, we have to tell them that uh, governments are going to make it expensive to pollute. And they're going to pay people who can suck carbon dioxide permanently out of the atmosphere. That's basically what we have to convince people. And that's what the carbon-linked bond is all about. It's basically a government coming in and saying, I promise you, we are going to price carbon. Now, you might be saying, mm-hmm, I don't believe that. And, and that's true. I think it's a problem for a government like the U.S., which has shown no ability to put an adequate price on carbon. Uh, if they were to come in today and say, yeah, we're going to price carbon, I think the market would say, yeah, right, good luck with that. I don't believe it. And, and that would be revealed. Now, you might have a government that would step up and say, no, nope, we are going to do this, and here it is. I don't think we have that government in the U.S. Now, we do have governments that are very credible and that are already pricing carbon, especially in Europe. That's where we see governments that have strong policies. You know, there's the emissions trading system. There's fossil fuel taxes. There's feed-in tariffs. There's a number of different policies used throughout Europe, which have uh, basically created incentives over $100 a ton throughout Europe. Uh, the, the, The leading countries, you know, are UK, Spain, Germany, France, all have very strong incentives to reduce emissions. Uh, and and by the way, the economies are much more fuel efficient. There, there's less carbon per unit of output in Europe than there is the rest of the world. And the U.S. and China and India, the big polluters, have not gotten on board. And that's just um, unacceptable. And so the idea here of the carbon link bond is, by the way, very much to take into account the psychology of uh, the public, of, of voters which uh, have short horizons that's, you know, kind of well known. So when France, you know, wanted to raise the the tax on petrol, you have the Yellow Vest uh, movement. And in the U.S., there have been a lot of states that have tried to uh, tax carbon and they've had, you know, pushback as well in Oregon and Washington state. And eventually some of these states have done it. We have a carbon tax in California. There's what are called the the Reggie states, the regional Uh, greenhouse gas uh, states in the East Coast, but most of the states in the U.S. do not. The U.S. as a whole has a carbon price, as we measure it, below the global average at at about $18 a ton. Again, it's just uh, uh, an order of magnitude too small. Uh, So the idea here is to find governments that are, you know, uh, leading, uh, who have strong policies to uh, price emissions, and to then issue a bond. That, you It know, could be a 10-year bond, could be a 20-year bond. Really, whatever the government wants in terms of stating, here's where we're going with carbon pricing. Some governments have actually stated it without issuing a bond. Like Singapore has said, okay, we're going to start with a relatively low carbon price, but it's going to go up uh, you know, quickly. Well, that's kind of what I have in mind in these carbon-linked bonds. Is put it in. Here's the path we're going from where we are today until where we're going to be in, you know, twenty thirty or twenty forty, whatever it is, and and then uh, you know show the credibility and and policies that will hit that.
0: Let me let me let me ask a question here. Um, I, I haven't I haven't fully thought this through, but I, I wonder uh, what you think about this. Uh, bonds are obviously. Issued by governments uh, commonly. But uh, of course, the cryptocurrency market, you know, because currencies are also issued normally by governments. And now you have got this cryptocurrencies. Now, I just, uh, you know, wonder in in what way would a crypto backed bond, carbon bond, be different? That would be done by one of the big platforms, uh, issued by one of the big platforms, as opposed to uh, by, by a government. Would that have served the same purpose or would that not work?
1: And well, if so, why not? Yeah, well, a corporation, uh, a Bitcoin issuer, could issue such a bond. They don't have the government authority to set policy, so in that case, it would be kind of a bet on another government or another, you know, agency. But they could certainly issue such a bond, and such a bond would reveal where the market expects, you know, uh, carbon to be priced. And it if, may indeed, quit- it
0: may indeed exert. Uh, sort of some pressure on governments to follow through with policy because, of course, if significant amounts of capital would flow into into that crypto
1: market, then
0: the investors would have an interest in policy to follow th- suit, no?
1: Well, uh, if there's interest in, in effect, betting on that carbon price, yeah, you could see that. I mean, yeah, and it would reveal a price and that revelation might incent governments. So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying could happen. It's just that, you know, it makes, I think, a little more sense for a government that wants to say, here's where we're going. I want you to see and I want you to understand that I'm going to do this. That creates credibility uh, itself as opposed to, well, here's here's a a betting arena where you can make a bet on whether the government is going to do it or not.
0: Now, now there's another aspect which I haven't fully thought through, but you you probably have an answer to this. Do you know uh, if investors would start sort of selling short those bonds, um, essentially sort of, if you like, uh, bidding against the government uh, in in the way, say, Soros did against the pounds in the 1990s and, you know, threw the pound out of the uh, European exchange rate mechanism, if that kind of um, dynamic would take hold, then that would massively kind of backfire, wouldn't it?
1: well, that would show that the market does not anticipate that the government is going to follow through. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a backfire. I think it's a reality. If you ask uh, today, what carbon price do you think the U.S. government is going to be putting on, you know, what incentives in 2035? Because I, you know, I have this great new technology, you know, I Uh, Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I've just, uh, you know, come out of the lab with this membrane that separates, uh, you know, acid from base and salt water, And it's going to, you know, revolutionize uh, carbon sequestration. And I think I can do it for one hundred dollars. It's going to take me me 10 years to get there. How do I finance that? Who's going to give me the money? Who's going to say, you know, yeah, I bet bet that's going to be profitable. I get that, but if if you take the uh, if the investor can make money both ways,
0: what incentive does the investor have to put pressure on government, or is that not part of your equation?
1: No, I think what you're saying is, is there a way, I hope this is what you're asking, is there a way that I, the entrepreneur, can lock in if if the government promises one hundred and twenty dollars a ton, okay? And if these bonds start selling at one hundred and twenty dollars a ton, then yes, I can lock in that $120 because I can basically go along the bond or I can go along a derivative instrument tied to the price of the bond. And if the government then doesn't hit that target, then they have to pay a higher coupon, the value of the bond itself goes up and I'm protected. So I can go ahead with my project and I don't have to worry about the price of the you know I've in effect already sold that carbon forward. Uh, through this market. Now, if what you're saying is, but wait a minute, people are going to come in and say, no, I'm, I don't believe they're going to actually hit that. I'm going to bet against it. And that in itself will cause the price of the bond to go up. If I haven't hedged yet, it's too late. And so now, uh, you know, basically the bond is expensive. It, it demonstrates that the market doesn't think the government is going to uh, come through. And at that point, Okay, uh, that government isn't going to do it. Let's find a government where it is credible policy.
0: So there is that really, this. absolutely, but 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 given that, I mean, we, we've said this already that there's at the moment far too less and or not enough money going into sort of carbon reducing or you know whatever kind of technologies, startups, right. industries, and then of course government subsidy will be you know um, needed to kind of to, to kickstart this and to to fuel it. Um, but well, if,
1: government subsidies are there, but they're too small, too small. The government exactly. is, so the government is subsidizing fossil fuels 10 times the amount that it's subsidizing low energy. So, of course, we're going in the wrong direction. So we've so, got so, to so, stop so, the government subsidies to fossil fuels and and, you know, use that money to, to incentivize low carbon. It, it, you know, if you if you if you force polluters to pay a tax, that's revenue to the government. If you have the government subsidizing clean energy, that's a cost to the government. I, I understand that.
0: But my point is this. If the government, as a result of getting its pricing wrong, you know, in the same way as the UK kind of got something wrong in the 1990s and opened a window for Soros to come in. If, if, if that if that happens, then there is a, a financial risk to the government that goes beyond the sort of, if you like, the inertia of government, you know, uh, in in a sense that uh, at that point, the government, a a government might think, yeah, okay, uh, even if we are honestly trying to price it, there is the possibility uh, that, you know, that the market moves against us, Um, maybe not, not even because of nobody's fault, but just the way that that market dynamics build up, and all of a sudden we're out of an awful lot of money and have even less money to spend on subsidies for um, sort of carbon reducing technologies and all the rest. Um, is, is there a way of kind of somehow putting governments at ease instead of saying, well, you know, this is a kind of such an insignificant risk that the upside is so much greater than you should really kind of run with that? Or would you sort of caution governments to say, well, actually, you know, there is a possibility that given the kind of the significant interest on fossil, on the fossil fuel side, you know, the oil majors, they have got significant resources with which they could disrupt that market if they wish to do that, if they would want to put a spanner in the works. And the, the question is, is, is there a way of sort of saying to governments, well, actually, you um, there's a way of hedging against that risk in some ways, or is that something that we just have to accept as, as a kind of a part of, of, of that idea?
1: Well, uh, you know, the way I think about it is we've got to get globally harmonized pricing of emissions. That's what that's the aim here. And how do we get there? Uh, the, the UN would be the obvious place, that, you know, if we had a global governance system that yep. was up to the task. But obviously, they haven't been up to the task. And so now the question is, how can governments coordinate going forward and create these, uh, if, you know, these incentives to reduce emissions? And some countries are already, you know, halfway there. Other countries, in particular, again, the U.S. and China, have not shown the ability to create these kind of incentives. And that, that is why Europe, for instance, is putting on these uh, you know, carbon border adjustments. And, you know, that's that's what we've got to encourage. And 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 really, I think what uh, is at the heart of a carbon link bond is the fact that what it does is it turns the the typical equation, which makes it hard to raise prices on carbon, which is, you know, the yellow jet, the yellow vest problem, which is, you know, if I say I want to raise carbon price today, I get a lot of pushback. People say, well, you know. benefits way off in the future i don't know if it's really worth it but right now i can't afford it that's the usual equation now with a carbon link bond what the government does is it says all right i'm going to raise i'm going to borrow money from the future i'm going to spend it now and i can spend it really on anything i want but in particular i could spend it on you know subsidizing uh evs or batteries or Hydro or, uh, you know, just basic research, whatever it is, in low carbon. Uh, and, and, uh, and by the way, I'm also promising that I'm going to price it in the future. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to, you know, find a, a good home for your investment, this is the place to do it. Uh, encouraging that low carbon investment, promising to make it profitable <laughs> in the future, causing that investment today and and the, the pain, so to speak, the carbon price is off in the future. And by the way, I told you it's coming, so it's not a surprise. It's coming, we all know we need it. And in the meantime, we're gonna be working with China and you know, India and all the other countries to make sure that we all do this together and do it, you know, quickly because we need to get going. I mean, I'm
0: totally I think it's a brilliant idea. I wouldn't have uh, asked to, uh, to to meet okay. you for, for an interview if, if I didn't. So I'm not being critical of it in in, in in general, but I'm just wondering how we can reduce the hurdle. The sort of how we can make this get this over the line. Um, And, and, and so this is a question of how can we kind of reduce the risks? For governments to actually take this on this is really the 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 background of my thinking here because they will be thinking oh like if people bet against us we could be losing our shirt um so so how can we how can we hedge again how can we get it over the line because that's sort of such a such a showstopper and so all
1: right so my my theory of the game is someone starts and they're successful and uh first of all they have credibility so it's not the u.s it's 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 another government and they have credibility. They they say, "Here's where we are today. Here's where we're going." Uh, and by the way, these are, you know, there's plenty of governments out there who, when they say, "Here's where we are. Here's where we're going," people are like, "Okay, I get it. That, that government can do it." And uh, and then if that policy attracts more investment, and all of a sudden you get the green economy and the you know the the. The, the investment that you wanted it, it, in the direction that you want, and then you're putting pressure on other countries and saying, why aren't you? You know where are you going to be pricing carbon? And, uh, and, and where should we be pricing carbon? Because the bottom line is right now, you know we have pathetically low incentives to reduce emissions. and so we're not moving fast enough. And you know how do we get there quickly? We have to all move together. And so we have to create a coalition. A coalition of the willing. And it, when you look around the world at, you know, who who is moving quickly, it's, it's economies like Europe, which, uh, you know, does not have a lot of uh, uh, fossil fuel reserves. Uh, you know, India is just getting started, but they don't have a lot of fossil fuel reserves. So they're going to move quickly to a green economy and China as well. You know, China right now is the biggest polluter in the world by far, but they also are the biggest producer of, uh, you know, uh, EVs, uh, electric vehicles, batteries, wind. They know where we're going, and and I think they're going to be willing to move quickly. Uh, So I I think we all have to, and we all have to send those signals ASAP. One last question about
0: the way you visualize this uh, uh, carbon-linked bond market. Um, I mean, of course, governments have the option to limit the amount of bonds they issue, so uh, so, and, and through that also, in some ways, limit risk because obviously uh, less money would be involved. Um, now, w- w- do you have a sense of what the the minimal sort of capitalization, the minimum requirement would be for a sort of a, for liquidity levels to reach a point where this makes sense? Um, you know, what, what kind of market size are you talking about for this to kind of to try it out, to give to give it a first kind of go?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, I would say that uh, there's no minimum size here. It's just relative to the economy that you're talking about, really. And uh, we've seen with TIPS, uh, it, those are the, that's the name of the U.S. version of these real uh, inflation protected securities. Uh, that, you know, there can be a liquid market and uh, and there can be derivatives on that. So if you want to bet on uh, what they call breakeven inflation, if you want to make a pure bet on inflation in the U.S., you can do it. Now, if you had a, a small country that would have a relatively small market, you know, it, it it wouldn't be able to handle trillions of dollars for sure, but it could handle millions. And, uh, you know, uh, it would just have to be relative to the size of the market.
0: And it would of course only relate to the economy of that country uh, because of course they would regulate their own carbon uh, policies um this has been really 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 uh, a great discussion uh, bob thank you ever ever so much um last question is anybody taking this on do you have any discussions with any government or anybody about this kind of in some shape or another moving forward or does this is this purely an academic idea at this point
1: well, it's an idea that none of these exist. But after that New York Times article that you saw was published, yeah, I've been uh, contacted by a number of different uh, states in the United States and then other countries uh, that are interested in learning more about it anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's been very well received. There's a lot of interest and, and we're moving forward. If in a year's time some brokers has been made,
0: would you be happy to come on to another interview with me and to sort of reflect on, you know, how that year went and 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 how this was received and what the actual in in practical terms, you know, what the uh, the worries and the kind of you know uh, the, what the actual feedback is and how possibly to move forward with this? Would this be something? Because I'd like to kind of stick with
1: this and see how how this evolves. Would you be happy to come on again in ten years' time? Uh, well, I, I promise you, I'll come back. I hope it's with good news. <laughs> that is really
0: very kind, Bob. Thank you ever so much. Um, I know you have you had to push out another meeting, um, so um, I, I want to really finish on the dot. Um, thank you ever ever so much. It's 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 been a really marvelous uh, uh, conversation, and um, I wish you the very best of luck with this. And hopefully, we speak again in about twelve months' time.
1: Hopefully, thank you so much. My thank pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Have a good day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.